Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Major educational reforms in Florida. Governor Ron DeSantis gives colleges greater ability to fire tenured professors. He argues instead of protecting academic freedom, tenure is now breeding intellectual orthodoxy and unproductive professors. Higher education is important, but it needs to be accountable. After a three-year journey to defend his freedom of speech, an Ohio college professor is now calling on other educators to stand up for their rights. Actor Johnny Depp's defamation lawsuit continues. And today, the first day, the famous actor took the stand. Nor have I ever struck uh, um, any woman um, in my life. Title 42 is expiring next month. Now more Democrats are joining Republicans pushing back on President Biden's plan to end the pandemic-era border restriction. The Russian military has aligned its ground forces along a 300-mile front in eastern Ukraine. Russian officials gave the Ukrainian military a chance to surrender, but it appears they will continue fighting. Today, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed into law major reforms in higher education. This includes giving colleges greater ability to fire tenured professors, something previously difficult to do. NTD's Grace Coulter has the details. In keeping with his goal to make Florida a national leader on education, Governor Ron DeSantis Tuesday signed into law multiple reforms in higher learning. What we're doing today is really making sure that, yes, Higher education is important, but it needs to be accountable. The most notable reform takes aim at tenure, a professor's lifetime contract which ensures their job security. The new law gives colleges the freedom to part ways with a tenured professor after a now-required five-yearly review of their accomplishments, productivity and teaching. Tenure was there to protect people so that they could do ideas that, that maybe would cause them to lose their job or whatever and, and academic freedom. Uh, I don't know that that's really the role that it plays, quite frankly, anymore. I mean, I think what, what tenure does is it, uh, if anything, it's created more of, a, of an intellectual orthodoxy uh, where people that have dissenting views, it's harder for them to even become tenured in the first place. And then once you're tenured, your productivity really declines, uh, particularly in certain disciplines. Conservatives have argued that while tenure protects academic freedom, it has enabled radical left-wing professors to gain a foothold in higher education. The new law also requires greater transparency in curriculum and qualifies high school graduates whose grandparents live in Florida for in-state tuition if their test scores are high enough. Grace Coulter, NTD News. DeSantis today also formally asked state lawmakers to consider eliminating Walt Disney World's self-governing status during an upcoming special session. This is in response to Disney's opposition to a Florida bill banning classroom instruction on sexual orientation and gender in kindergarten through third grade. DeSantis previously said Disney's special privileges in Florida are not justifiable and may not serve the public interest. And a former assistant principal at a Virginia elementary school claimed she was harassed because of her race. She says the school's anti-racism policy is racist. NTD's Arlene Richards has the story. 
The Albemarle County School Board in Virginia has an anti-racism policy and requires all 3,000 of its employees to complete training in furtherance of establishing an equitable community. But Emily Mays, a former assistant principal, said in a recent lawsuit that the training itself is racist. Mays, who is white, contends in a 44-page lawsuit that the training promotes racial division and encourages racial harassment. Her attorney, Ryan Bangert, said anti-racism training can be boiled down to three principles, including treating people differently because of the color of their skin. Second, the only way to uh, address past discrimination, in the words of Ibram X. Kendi, is for uh, institutions of the state to engage in present discrimination. And the only way to address present discrimination is for institutions of the state to engage in future discrimination. He said Mays was harassed and abused because she questioned the school's curriculum, which was based on the anti-racism policy. Dr. David Childs, a scholar in critical race theory, says it's important for teachers to receive anti-racism training to undo a legacy of racism. So it calls for administration to be intentional and deliberate uh, about uh, their practices. And it calls for the curriculum to be transformed. Um, it calls for uh, the teachers to uh, in integrate it into their curriculum. And so it's very, very important to help us move forward. He said anti-racism curricula are designed for empowerment, to provide an equal playing field so that all races can be involved in policymaking decisions. The school board's information officer told NTD in an email that the board has not reviewed the allegations because it has not received the complaint yet. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. An appeals court ruled last month that a university violated a professor's freedom of speech when it punished him for refusing to refer to a male student as a female. Now the professor is calling on other teachers to stand up for their right to free speech. NTD's Chenny Wu has more. We cannot be passive. We cannot acquiesce. Ohio professor Nick Merriweather's three-year quest to defend his freedom of speech concluded last week after Shawnee State University agreed to pay him $400,000 in a settlement. He had been formally punished by the school in 2018 after refusing a male student's demand to be referred to as a woman. The philosophy professor had offered to use any name the student requested instead of female titles and pronouns, but the university rejected that compromise. It threatened the professor with disciplinary action, even termination, if he didn't comply. The university was basically imposing an ideology on me and requiring me to endorse and accept the ideology on pain of my losing my job, and I thought, well, this is an absolutely egregious violation of my freedom of expression, my religious freedom. Similar cases have arisen across the country as more schools adopt policies that require teachers to call students by their preferred names and pronouns. Last month, a Kansas middle school teacher was suspended after she refused to use a transgender student's preferred name. Merriweather's lawyer says people shouldn't be penalized for expressing a different opinion. We have to be able to discuss these issues freely and not be fearful that the government's going to punish us simply because we have a, a different viewpoint. Merriweather says he hopes his case will encourage other educators to also take a stand for their freedom of speech. Chenny Wu, NTD News. Johnny Depp took the stand today in his lawsuit against his ex-wife, Amber Heard. The actor said he's normally a very private person. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. This was the first time Johnny Depp took the stand. 
and he said that he and his ex-wife, Amber Heard, did have arguments. But never did I myself reach the point of um, uh, striking Ms. Heard in any way, nor have I ever struck uh, um, any woman um, in my life. Depp said he went through great lengths to stay away from paparazzi so his kids would not see him or their mother as novelties. So I was always a very private person. Um, so for me to come up here and stand before you or sit before you all um, and spill the truth um, is quite exposing. Depp's friends, family, and employees have testified that Heard was the aggressor in the relationship, physically attacking Depp on multiple occasions. Meanwhile, jurors have seen text messages in which Depp used vulgar language to describe Heard and expressed a desire for revenge against her. Amber Heard is expected to testify later in the trial. Jason Perry, NTD News. The White House today announced they're restoring environmental regulations that will give the federal government a heavier hand over infrastructure projects. The administration is making the move in the name of fighting climate change. NTD's Melina Wisecup has more details. The White House is feeling the heat for resuming oil and gas leasing on federal lands, which is contrary to its climate pledges. Now the administration is eager to send the message that they are still working to clean up the environment. One plan of action is imposing more federal regulations on infrastructure projects. Today the White House finalized a rule to strengthen the National Environmental Policy Act. It would put projects like building highways, pipelines and oil wells under the microscope for rigorous environmental reviews by the government. These regulations were peeled back under Trump to try to speed up building pipelines and infrastructure projects that he said would boost the economy and provide jobs. The Biden administration says reimposing what they call environmental safeguards will speed up the process for infrastructure projects. But critics say the regulations could slow things down. This new rule will soon be put to the test, as states roll out new projects funded under the recently signed infrastructure law. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. More Democrats are pushing back against President Biden's plan to end Title 42 next month. That includes Biden ally Senator Chris Coons. Coons says he hopes the administration can reconsider the decision to lift Title 42. Uh, my hope is that that will be reconsidered appropriately. Mm -hmm. uh, I know that there are both Republicans and Democrats calling for a reconsideration. Under Title 42, Border Patrol can deport illegal immigrants quickly for public health reasons related to the pandemic. The Biden administration is terminating this Trump-era policy beginning May 23rd. Yet more Democrats are joining Republicans in opposing the move. Senator Gary Peters said that title plan, the plan to end Title 42 should be revisited and perhaps delayed. And five Democratic senators co-sponsored a bipartisan bill to temporarily block the lifting of Title 42. Fifty-six percent of voters oppose Biden's decision, according to a Morning Consult political poll. Russian troops have amassed along a 300-mile front in the Donbass region. Ukrainian officials say this begins a new and potentially climactic phase of the war. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. Another stage of this operation is beginning, uh, and I'm sure this will be 
uh, a very important moment of this entire special operation. And Ukrainian President Zelensky also alerted his country that a Russian full-scale offensive in the eastern region has begun. An intelligence expert explains what this means. The sort of statement the offensive has started, you know, indicates mentally that there's a checkered flag being waved and tanks are going to come running across the start line, and it's more subtle than that. Russian forces have bombarded a steel plant in Mariupol, which is said to be one of the last Ukrainian strongholds in the port city. A Russian official gave Ukrainian forces the opportunity to escape alive if they lay down their weapons. But according to this soldier, it appears they won't be surrendering anytime soon. As I said back in 2016, if they step on our territory, let them come in. They will stay here forever. There is enough land for everyone to be buried there. During this new offensive, many citizens are still evacuating. According to the UN, there are approximately 4.9 million refugees that have already fled Ukraine, some making it all the way to Mexico, and some stay and fight. This woman's husband died recently fighting for Ukraine. When I read how some men would dress as women, hide under car seats just to leave the country, I have always known that my husband is not like them. And this moment, when he was covered with a flag, that's how it was to be. He lived like a hero, and he died as a hero. It appears that Ukrainian forces will continue to fight against the Russians' full-scale offensive in eastern Ukraine. Jason Perry, NTD News. Coming up, travelers can ditch their masks on airplanes in Amtrak after a federal judge struck down the mandate. Today, President Biden was asked if he'll appeal the judge's decision. And in the NFL, the Cleveland Browns' losses are suddenly under investigation. Were they that bad on purpose? That and more coming up on NTD News. NTD's Capital Report. It's about getting answers. Cutting through the fog of politics. It's about your questions and our chances to ask. What is the net impact of the American Carson Graves? Thank you for joining us. We're speaking to those in power to find out what does this mean for the people. We're here so you are in the know. You might have heard that wearing masks on airplanes is no longer required by the TSA. Today, two more big organizations are dropping mask requirements. Rideshare apps Uber and Lyft announced drivers and riders can go maskless again. NTD's Arian Pazdar has that story. Uber's change comes a day after a federal judge in Florida struck down the CDC's mask mandate. Now multiple airlines, Amtrak and more don't enforce using masks anymore. People were seen celebrating on airplanes Monday after the announcement was made. For the past two years, Uber and Lyft required passengers and drivers to wear a mask during the trip. And passengers were not allowed to sit in the front seat. Now everyone can go maskless again and all seats can be occupied. Personally, I, I think it's good. I don't like driving around with a mask all the time. Raul is an Uber driver in New York City and the founder of NYC Drivers Unite. He says he thinks many passengers will want the drivers to keep wearing masks because of the notion some passengers have. The driver could give the passenger COVID, but the passenger can't give the driver COVID. 
That's the attitude that they have. You know, it happens all the time. And I think they're definitely going to want the driver to wear the mask because the driver has COVID. Raul says he doesn't think Uber is going to lose any passengers over dropping the mask mandate. He says there's a lot of crime in New York City and most passengers prefer a maskless Uber driver over using the subway. Ariane Pastar, NTD News, New York. The federal judge's decision to strike down the mask mandate on public transportation went against CDC guidance. President Biden today was asked what he thinks about it and whether he's going to appeal the judge's ruling. Mr. President, should people continue to wear masks on planes? That's up to them. Are you going to like to appeal the ruling uh, or the ruling that the judge made striking down the mandate? I haven't spoken to the CDC yet. The president was asked these questions while on an infrastructure-related trip to New Hampshire. He was also asked whether he'll send more artillery weaponry to Ukraine, which he replied yes. A group of local businesses and residents in Philadelphia is suing over the city's reinstated mask mandate. The renewed mandate became effective on Monday. Here's more. More than 20 businesses and residents filed a lawsuit last Saturday in Pennsylvania's Commonwealth Court challenging Philadelphia's renewed mask mandate. The city's health officials reinstated indoor masking on Monday after previously ending it on March 2nd. Attorney Thomas W. King III, who represents the plaintiffs, tells NTD that he believes health officials don't have the authority to do so. They um, met in a room in the, in the Board of Health there, and they came up with their own standards. So they've invented um, some standards, and, uh, they, and they've gotten rid of the CDC. And when they did that, they didn't follow, in, in our opinion, they didn't follow the law. Philadelphia health officials say they want to prevent a potential new wave of an Omicron subvariant. But King points to the fact that Philadelphia is the only city in the state and the region with an indoor mask mandate. He says this would hurt businesses in the city. So this is Big Brother um, saying that they know what's best for, for people in Philadelphia and saying that the people of Philadelphia can't make their own decisions as to whether to wear, to wear masks or not. The plaintiffs in the case are also asking the mayor to intercede and end the mask mandate. The restaurant industry in Philadelphia says it's opposed to the new mandate. NTD asked Philadelphians what they think of the city's indoor mask mandate, and here's what they said. I like it because I put my sign here. Have okay. to put a mask in there because protect myself and protect two other people too. So I think on a maybe case-by-case -case basis, masks are okay, but as a citywide basis, I would like to see it end. It's annoying, but I think it's necessary just because we don't want people to get sick. So it doesn't really bother me, so I don't really mind wearing it. Actually, I think it's not necessary. People got used not to wear masks, so they should have leave it to the people choices. I think everybody should, and I like to travel a lot, so I keep my mask. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. Updates to the tragic death of a 14-year-old boy who fell to his death in an amusement park in Orlando, Florida, three weeks ago. New reports show that the seat in which the boy was sitting was manually adjusted before the ride, resulting in a much wider opening of the safety harness, which he slipped through. Usually, a safety harness on the over 400-foot-tall ride has an opening of about three inches. 14-year-old Tyree Simpson was 6 foot 5 inches tall and weighed over 300 pounds. The safety harness on his seat was adjusted to open more than 7 inches. Florida's Department of Agriculture is investigating the incident. 
They say the adjustment resulted in the ride being unsafe, but added there were many potential contributions to the accident. They say a full review of the ride's design and operation is needed. The Washington Post is under fire for doxing the creator of an anonymous Twitter account known as the Libs of TikTok. The account reposts videos of teachers promoting an LGBT agenda to children and has over 700,000 followers. Washington Post reporter Taylor Lorenz published this article on Tuesday titled Meet the Woman Behind Libs of TikTok Secretly Fueling the Rights Outrage Machine. In it, she slammed the popular Twitter account Libs of TikTok as spreading anti-LGBTQ sentiment and identified the account owner as Shea Raychik, a real estate salesperson in New York. In the original article, Lorenz also included a hyperlink leading to a public information page with an address linked to Raychik. The post later removed the hyperlink without issuing a correction or explanation. Since 2021, Libs of TikTok has been compiling videos and social media posts of teachers promoting an LGBT agenda to schoolchildren. Media outlets, including Fox News, have regularly cited videos from this account. The Libs of TikTok creator reacted to the doxing, saying she is currently holed up in a safe location and she's confident she will get through this and come out even stronger. She also posted a photo of the Washington Post reporter in a doorway, suggesting that the reporter harassed her relatives. Multiple conservative influencers, including Donald Trump Jr. and Ben Shapiro, have expressed outrage at the Washington Post reporter's behavior. One of the key question marks over Elon Musk's Twitter bid is how he would finance the deal if it were accepted. Musk has offered about $40 billion for Twitter. His net worth, according to Forbes, is over $250 billion, but most of that is tied up in Tesla stock. It's not cash. But Apollo Global Management, one of the world's biggest private equity firms, could be willing to front Musk the money. It's not confirmed. The Wall Street Journal first reported the news, but we asked someone working at the company if it's true. They said Apollo recently launched a new fund and this type of deal would fit the bill. They said Apollo doesn't care about politics and would front the money if it made business sense. Apollo would want a 6 to 12 percent return every year on its investment. And according to a new poll, more Californians feel not only that both state and federal taxes are too high, but also that their financial prospects are worse. The UC Berkeley Institute for Government Studies, or IGS, released research data on Friday about Californians' feelings on finance. The poll found Californians feel taxes are too high and economic outlooks are low. 64% of registered voters said state and federal taxes are too high, with 26% saying the amount was about right. That's 10% more people who feel taxes are too high compared to 2016. 42% of voters say they are now worse off financially compared to one year ago. 37% said no change and 21% said they're better off. Almost half of the responders said they expect no change in their economic future, while 30% expected things to get worse. IGS co-director G. Christina Mora said, The findings indicate that many Californians are feeling pinched in today's economy. While the pandemic brought gains for a few, a much larger percentage of Californians have borne an economic burden during this time period. The poll came out just ahead of both tax day and lawmakers' return to Sacramento after a spring recess. Lawmakers have voted down certain tax decreases, such as legislation to halt the state's gas tax.
Turning to sports news, the NFL has opened an investigation into allegations that the Cleveland Browns gave incentives to former head coach Hugh Jackson to lose games during the 2016 and 2017 seasons. NTD's Dave Martin has more. Back in February, after former Miami Dolphins head coach Brian Flores said he was offered $100,000 per loss from ownership in 2019, former Browns head coach Hugh Jackson said he got a similar offer in Cleveland. Jackson tweeted that owner Jimmy Haslam was happy while we kept losing. He then replied to another user's comment that said it couldn't have been 100000 with, trust me, it was a good number. But Jackson later walked those comments back in an interview with CNN, saying he was never offered money, but stood by his claim that ownership wanted to lose. Jackson told ESPN that during his first two seasons as coach, bonus money was available if certain criteria were met, like being the youngest team and having so many draft picks. Jackson went just 3, 36, and 1 from 2016 to 2018 with the Browns. The NFL has tasked former SEC chair Mary Jo White, who is looking into Flores' claims, to lead the investigation. Dave Martin, NTD News. The NBA playoffs continue tonight with another triple header as the Hawks, Grizzlies, and Pelicans look to bounce back from Game 1 losses. NTD's Dave Martin has more. Trey Young will look to return to form after one of his worst shooting games ever as the Heat hosts the Hawks. Young went just 1-for-12 from the floor, including misses on all seven three-pointers as Miami routed Atlanta in Game 1. And while Young couldn't get anything going offensively, the Heat's Duncan Robinson was on fire, hitting eight of nine threes and scoring 27 points in the route. Memphis looks to even their series after Minnesota dropped them in the opener. Timberwolves duo Anthony Edwards and Carl Anthony Towns scored 65 points between them in game one of this matchup between the NBA's two highest scoring teams. Meanwhile, Phoenix looks to go up 2-0 against New Orleans in the late game. The Suns raced out to a 19-point halftime lead in Game 1, but needed a big fourth quarter from 36-year-old Chris Paul to hold off a Pelicans rally. The ageless Paul hit all seven shots he took in the fourth, scoring 19 points and finished with 30 in the win. Finally, the NBA came down hard on Brooklyn star Kyrie Irving Tuesday hitting him with a $50,000 fine for making obscene gestures toward Boston fans in Brooklyn's loss Sunday. Game two between the Celtics and Nets will be Wednesday again in Boston. Dave Martin, NTD News. Tom Brady's retirement announcement and then abrupt reversal 40 days later have been two of the biggest NFL stories this offseason. The star quarterback told ESPN Monday that he started thinking about a return when free agency began last month. Brady said he thought he could still do it physically and loves the competition. He also said the way the season finished, a home loss to the Los Angeles Rams was a bitter ending. But before the season starts, Brady will be pairing with MVP Aaron Rodgers in a 12-hole golf exhibition in Las Vegas on June 1st. The duo will take on fellow star quarterbacks Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen. Allen and Brady have already started the trash talking on Twitter, with Brady taking aim at Allen's golf approach and 
Allen at Brady's Gulf Apparel. Coming up, an entire Home Depot burned to the ground in California's Silicon Valley. Now, a suspect has been arrested for arson. And more police will be patrolling a Los Angeles tourist hotspot. Crime is on the rise, but city officials and residents don't agree on who's to blame. More when we return with NTD News. After a week-long investigation, Northern California city officials say they've identified and arrested a person suspected of starting the massive Home Depot fire. NTD's David Lamb has that story. What was initially regarded as non-suspicious, officials now say is arson. The Santa Clara County District Attorney's Office said a San Jose man was charged with intentionally lighting the fire that led to the destruction of a Home Depot. The fire began around 5.30 p.m. on Saturday, April 9th. The evidence shows that the suspect, who had earlier that day stolen items from a nearby Bass Pro Shop, lit the fire in the Home Depot and tried to leave the store with a cart containing stolen tools. The attorney's office said the suspect, 27-year-old Dylan Gogi, was stopped by a Home Depot employee. He then fled in another person's car, suspected to be a friend's. Later, as the Home Depot was burning, he continued a theft spree that extended to a Macy's in the East Bay. And after examining the evidence, ATF and the San Jose Fire Department have classified this fire as incendiary, meaning it was intentionally set and was an act of arson. Authority says a witness identified Gogi in a photo and he was later arrested on April 15th. Gogi's arraignment was scheduled for Tuesday, and he's charged with three counts of arson, seven counts of grand theft, and three counts of petty theft. The Home Depot fire started on April 9th in Silicon Valley's San Jose. It was a five-alarm fire, prompting about 100 firefighters on scene to contain it within about six hours. What you see here today is a result of hard work, investigative experience, and a multi-agency collaboration. SJPD said at the time of the fire, there were at least 30 to 35 employees inside the store, as well as customers. The fire burned down the store and all of the items inside. It also damaged property of two nearby homes. Nobody was injured. Now the case is still under investigation, as well as how the fire spread so quickly and the effectiveness of the fire suppression system in the Home Depot. Now the district attorney said that the fire caused an estimated $17 million in damage and inventory loss. David Lamb, NTD News, California. A group of parents, teachers and students are calling on a Southern California school district to end its staff COVID-19 vaccine mandate. Instead of uncredentialed people standing in for teachers, the parents want unvaccinated teachers to return to school. NTD's Eileen Ang has more. Bring back our teachers, bring back our students, bring back our staff. Parents, teachers and students gathered outside the Los Angeles Unified School District last Friday to ask their district to end the vaccine mandate. They want teachers in classrooms again to alleviate the worsening teacher shortage. 
Our teachers are suffering without us in the classroom because they have been having very challenging days, being that they're short-staffed, they don't have the support um, from admin, some of them. Los Angeles educators and Parents United organized the rally. It's in response to LAUSD Superintendent Alberto Carvalho's recent plan to fill 400 vacant teaching positions by drawing from a pool of about 3,000 administrators and other district staff. The group's leaders believe the district is facing teacher shortages largely due to the vaccine mandate, which was enacted on November 15th. Since November, the LAUSD, the largest school district in California, has fired 800 staff members for not complying with the mandate. About 600 teachers were forced to move to teach remotely on the district's online learning program. Um, also, what brought me out here is that I am standing up for my rights, um, for my family's rights, my own kids' rights, and I want to get back to work, to classroom. I want to be there for my children. I want to be there for my kids at work. And I want to be there because I love my job. Cortez hasn't been back to the classroom since October 15th. I don't agree that if you are going to get an education, you have to do this or do that. Otherwise, you're going to get kicked out. The two groups already sent a letter to the district on April 8th requesting to meet with Carvalho. They want to talk about allowing unvaccinated credentialed teachers to return to campuses and removing student and staff COVID-19 vaccine mandates for the upcoming school year. Los Angeles is reporting an uptick in both citywide and countywide crime. Local police are planning to increase patrols in Venice Beach in anticipation of more tourists in the area during the summer. But local residents say the rising crime is due to the homeless population. NTD Cynthia Kai brings us the story. The Los Angeles Police Department Pacific Division is planning to temporarily increase its presence in Venice Beach as tourists are expected to flock to the city during the summer months. According to LAPD, a total of three sergeants and 20 patrol officers were assigned to the area earlier in April. Officers will be undergoing special training and are expected to patrol the beach until October. But residents in the area say the uptick in crime is largely due to the homeless population using drugs and living in encampments and RVs near neighborhoods. They welcome the extra help from law enforcement, but say public safety should not be tailored exclusively for tourists. Sean O'Brien told the Epic Times the police presence is appreciated as a deterrent, but when the sun goes down, the mayhem ramps up and no help for the weekdays. Another resident, Yolanda Gonzalez, told the Epic Times a homeless person broke into her property two weeks ago. The person lives inside the encampment across the street from her home. According to the recent homeless count, nearly 2,000 people were recorded living on the streets in Venice, while Skid Row had over 4,000. Citywide, Los Angeles has over 41,000 homeless people, and the county has over 62,000. Los Angeles Sheriff's Department and city officials cleared out hundreds of encampments last summer. According to the LAPD Pacific Division's data, violent crime has increased by nearly 28 percent over the last two years, but arrests were down 27.2 percent. Coming up, why is China sticking to a zero-COVID policy that's hurting its economy and its people? Will China ever abandon the approach? Likely not this year. The French public will soon decide whether to elect Emmanuel Macron to another term or to embrace challenger Marine Le Pen. Find out how the candidates differ right here on NTD News.
Navigating a world of economic madness, you need to have the right guide. What do today's decisions mean for your tomorrow? We ask why, what's the alternative? Uncover the deeper reasons and the hidden influences and highlight the real opportunities for profit. At Entity Business, we connect the dots for you. Good evening. China's zero COVID policy is the reason why Shanghai is currently under strict lockdown, which has severely impacted the Chinese economy. Factories and businesses are closed, consumers are confined at home, ports and the supply chain are disrupted. The head of China's National Health Commission released a statement Monday. He says China will firmly oppose what it calls the wrongful thinking of coexisting with the virus. NTD's Don Ma helps us get to the bottom of why China is sticking with a policy that is so damaging to its economy. The head of China's National Health Commission said, quote, consolidate the hard-won pandemic prevention results and take practical action to welcome the 20th Party Congress. The interesting thing about this statement was that he associated the zero-COVID policy with an important upcoming CCP meeting. The 20th Party Congress is the meeting at which Xi Jinping will seek a third term. So why is this zero-COVID policy associated with this meeting? Could this policy be motivated by politics rather than the well-being of the Chinese people? I talk with an experienced China expert for some answers. He says whether the zero-COVID policy is successful directly impacts whether Xi Jinping will get a third term. He regards successful pandemic prevention through the zero-COVID strategy as one of the three major political achievements. He won't allow another strategy to take the zero-COVID strategy's place. If that happened, it will be equivalent to Xi Jinping announcing that he has made a serious mistake in pandemic prevention. This would become a major obstacle for him to getting a third term. The lockdowns as a result of the zero-COVID policy have impacted China's economy. Factories are shut down, retail sales declined in March compared to last year, people are confined to their homes, they can't buy groceries, they're starving. Some have even taken their own lives because the lockdown is too much for them to bear. Why is Xi Jinping sticking to the zero-COVID policy when it's hurting the Chinese economy and the Chinese people? Tang says she will disregard any cost as long as he can maintain power. CCP officials have always had this kind of thinking. The CCP will try to achieve its political goals or maintain its power at any cost. Because if it loses its power, it could never get it back. If the economy is ruined, they can always try to slowly recover it in the future. Even if people's lives and health are impacted, it's not important. Tang thinks China will stick to the zero-COVID policy until the CCP's 20th Party Congress is over, which is in November this year. Don Ma, NTD News. Over to France. The French will decide on April 24th whether to re-elect President Emmanuel Macron or blow up decades of consensus in favor of Marine Le Pen. Here's what to expect from them on major issues. Tout est possible. Vive la République! Vive la République! Et vive la France! 
On April 24th, the French people will decide whether to re-elect President Emmanuel Macron or Marine Le Pen. Here's where the candidates stand on three major issues. The economy, Europe and the Western Alliance. First up, the economy. Marine Le Pen advocates for a big spending protectionist government. The candidate wants to implement a buy-French policy for public tenders, cut the minimum retirement age to 60 for those who started work before 20, and scrap income tax for those aged under 30. As soon as I started my campaign, I integrated into my presidential platform to give back to the French 150 to 200 euros, on average, per month and per household, because I can well see that they can no longer get through it, including the middle class, who today can no longer survive. On the other side, Macron follows the, quote, neither left nor right motto. The French leader plans to double down on supply-side reforms he has implemented during his first mandate. The main plank of his manifesto is to increase the minimum pension age to 65 from 62. The only step we can take is for people to work longer, but it must be done in an intelligent manner. Although Le Pen has abandoned earlier plans to leave the euro, she has pledged to cut contributions to European Union coffers. She insists French law should prevail over EU rules and says she wants, eventually, to replace the EU with a, quote, Europe of nations. She has yet to spell out what this would look like. Le Pen would also employ thousands more customs agents to check goods entering France, including from other EU countries. Analysts say that would undermine the single market. In contrast, Macron is an ardent Europhile. He would continue to push for what he calls Europe's strategic autonomy in defence, technology, agriculture and energy. Macron has worked to reduce the bloc's dependence on other powers and sought to reorient the EU towards a more protectionist stance. He is likely to push for more regulation of US tech giants and has said he wanted to create a European metaverse to compete with Facebook's. Je veux une France. I want a France which inscribes itself in a strong Europe, which continues to form alliances with great democracies to defend itself. Not a France that exits from Europe with only international populists and xenophobes as its allies. That's not us. And finally, the Western Alliance. Le Pen wants to pull France out of transatlantic military alliance NATO's integrated command. Opponents accuse her of being too close to Moscow. She has condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but says Moscow could be an ally again post-war. In an interview, she said she would pursue a foreign policy at equal distance from Washington and Moscow. Don't seek to put me in a box because I don't fit in any mould. I'm a patriot and I do what's necessary for the French people to be prosperous, to be safe, to be happy and confident about the future. Macron has also ruffled NATO's feathers, describing it as, quote, brain dead back in 2019. He has since said the Russian invasion of Ukraine had, quote, jolted it back to life. He wants to make Europeans less dependent on the US military for security and has pushed the EU to focus more on the Indo-Pacific and China's rising influence in the region.
And in the UK, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson faced members of Parliament for the first time after being fined for breaking COVID regulations. Lawmakers will vote on a motion on Thursday that could trigger an investigation into whether he misled Parliament over Downing Street parties. The Prime Minister, his wife and Chancellor Rishi Sunak paid fines last week for attending a birthday gathering for Johnson in June 2020. Here's NTD's Jane Wirrell with this report. The At the start of Parliament's afternoon session, the Speaker of the House of Commons announced that MPs will have a vote on Thursday on whether the Prime Minister should be examined for misleading Parliament about breaking COVID laws. Scheduling the debate for Thursday will, I hope, give members an opportunity to consider the motions and their response to it. He said that it's not for him to determine whether or not the Prime Minister has committed a contempt, but to decide if it's an arguable case to be examined. The Prime Minister made his apology to MPs and reiterated that he didn't realise he broke the rules before bringing the focus back to Ukraine. That on the 12th of April, I received a fixed penalty notice relating to an event in Downing Street on the 19th of June 2020. I paid the fine immediately and I offered the British people a full apology. And I take this opportunity on the first available sitting day to repeat my wholehearted apology to the House. As soon as I received the notice, I acknowledged the hurt and the anger. And I said that people had a right to expect better of their Prime Minister. And I repeat that, Mr Speaker, again in the House now. Let me also say, not by way of mitigation or excuse, but purely, purely because it explains my previous words in this House, that it did not occur to me then or subsequently that a gathering in the Cabinet room just before a vital meeting on Covid strategy could amount to a breach of the rules. I repeat, that was my mistake, and it is precisely because I know that so many people are angry and disappointed that I feel an even greater sense of obligation to deliver on the priorities of the British people and to respond in the best traditions of our country to Putin's barbaric onslaught against Ukraine. Our Ukrainian friends are fighting for the life of their nation, and they achieved the greatest feat of arms of the 21st century by repelling the Russian assault on Kiev. And the whole House will share my admiration for their heroism and courage. The Prime Minister also spoke about plans for the UK's energy independence and the cost of living crisis. The Prime Minister knows what he is. Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer hits back, again calling for the Prime Minister to resign, giving an example of a man who didn't hold his dying wife's hand because he followed Covid rules. Boris Johnson apologised several times, Conservative MP Mark Harper saying he strongly supports the government in standing up to Ukraine, but that Boris Johnson is, in his words, no longer worthy of the great office he holds. Some MPs are most likely still deciding whether they share that view or not. This isn't an issue that looks like it's going to go away. Jane Warrell, NTG News, London.
Coming up, researchers celebrate the rise in the seahorse population in Rio de Janeiro. A ban has helped them flourish, and local fishermen have changed how they deal with those they accidentally catch. More on that when we return here on NTD News. Researchers in Rio de Janeiro are celebrating a growing seahorse population. This comes after a ban on their capture in local waters. The bay used to be Rio's most dangerous spot for seahorses, but now these extraordinary creatures are making a comeback. This orange seahorse is the most common species found in Rio de Janeiro. We found a pregnant male seahorse big and beautiful and in very good health. The next step is to register the depth of the water, its temperature and the length of the animal. Marine biologists also found a hairy seahorse. It has skin extensions for better camouflage. Seahorse populations in this bay used to be severely depleted. That's because divers would catch them and sell them to aquariums. Seahorse trade did not have specific legislation, so people came collected them and sold them to many aquarium shops, whether in Brazil or for export, and there were no rules. But now the number of these remarkable animals has begun to grow. In 2014, a ruling was issued, number 447, from the Environmental Ministry, which banned the collection, handling and storing for seahorses in their natural environment. Since 2014, what we have seen here at Woodka Beach is significant consistent growth in the number of these animals. The Seahorse Project is also working to educate fishermen at Copacabana Beach. Their fishing nets often entangle nearby seahorses. Now they are learning how to release these animals without harming them. When we set out our fishing nets, sometimes the seahorses pass by and get stuck. So when we pull in the net, we return them to the water. When they are weakened, through our association with the Seahorse Project, we bring them back. We call them and they take them back to the university to treat them and later return them to the sea. The University of Santa Ursula has also set up a special laboratory for these seahorses, providing the genetic base for their reproduction. This way they can still repopulate in case of an accident, like an oil spill at sea. Male seahorses incubate the offspring. He becomes pregnant and we are able to tell him apart because he has this structure in the belly region. This is a pouch. It resembles a kangaroo pouch but is more complex. It looks very much like a female uterus. Seahorses forage for food near the sea floor. They also contribute to the survival of their environment. Feeding on algae near the seafloor helps preserve the underwater vegetation and keep the delicate balance of life in the sea. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.